I walked out in the garden where the poison blossoms grow. I didn't trail my fingers through the blooms as white as snow. I didn't eat the berries, shiny black and sticky red. I didn't prick the seed pods and watch them as they bled. I simply smiled gently, gave a wink and walked on by and thought of how my mother would have told me not to cry. She kept the poison garden for she knew it was an art and sometimes there is nothing else to mend a broken heart. True love is much like poison. Its effects are sure and strong. Your heart will race, you'll lose your breath. Your words will come out wrong. So give your love out wisely and be careful where you tread. Your apologies can't help you when you are already dead. My lovers were unfaithful and they thought I couldn't tell. So I fixed them tea and cookies and then waited till they fell. I drugged them through the courtyard and then buried them below the quiet, peaceful garden where the poison blossoms grow. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. As promised, we are getting back to our weird and old-timey roots this week. Yay! So happy about it. <laughs> we are telling the story of the most prolific American serial killer you've never heard of. Mm. Jane Toppin, otherwise known as Jolly Jane. Yes, girl. Isn't that nice? So yes. jolly. Yeah. When a serial killer has a weird happy nickname, you know it's going to be like a wild ride. Mm. <laughs> and when it comes to weird and old-timey things, Leslie and I really love to talk about them, but... We don't really want to look like them, per no, se. No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, I don't want to be referred to as vintage or Ugh. lived in. Oh, ew. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't that sound terrible? Yes. No good. Gently used. Holly, <laughs> these are awful. <laughs> They're thrift store terms for furniture. Okay. I'm not even kidding. I know. I know. <laughs> oh, God. But as they say, time keeps marching forward frequently. It does so all over your face. So I've tried everything to preserve my youthful appearance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know, Leslie, you do the same. Yeah. I've tried serums. Yeah. You tried some serums, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Supplements. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I tried a, a weird and dated practice that the internet calls face yoga. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just making ugly faces at yourself in the mirror for a long time. Yeah. But nothing seems to work as well as a few glowing drops of... Validation, a hill worth dying on. That's the stuff. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. I always try something else, but like, I'm just, you gotta go back to your roots. I do. My weird old timey roots. Yes, for sure. And as luck would have it, our fiends can give us this precious ingredient free of charge. Wait, how? But how? You must be asking yourself. <laughs> I am. At this very moment. Well, I will tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention. Attention equals support and support equals more and better content for you. Yay. Nice. 
But if you just can't wait for more, we would be dead in your life. Don't worry. You don't have to. <gasps> Aren't we nice? Yes. Yeah. You can support us over on Patreon. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly after-show host mortem, which mm -hmm. is available in both video and audio formats. All right, all right. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons. So come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. It's wild. It's a wild time over there. We're going to make t-shirts for our family reunion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be really nice. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. That's a good one. That's the best one, right? Yeah. You can leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell that uh, nurse at the local urgent care who you just know has probably pulled some weird stuff out of people's butts. Ooh. What's their name? Brenda. Oh, Brenda. Yeah. You know she's had some long ass nights. Yeah, Nurse B. <laughs> nurse B. <laughs> tell us your tales. Yeah. <laughs> then your friends and Nurse B can become fiends and we can all hang out together. And let's be honest, like, who doesn't want to hear right? what she has to say? I know. She knows some things. She's seen some things. Yes. They were all in butts. <laughs> I think that is all I have in the way of announcements for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Uh, nope. All right, then. On with the show. <laughs> Just 45 minutes outside of Boston lies the city of Taunton, Massachusetts. You're a New England girl. Have you been to Taunton? Mm, I don't think so, no. Me neither. Taunton is a busy place full of life and modern conveniences, but its many historical landmarks allow for a unique view into what American life would have been like in the decades following the Revolutionary War. So um, it's, it's just all of New England, basically. I like it. The whole, it. All of it is like that. Well, then I've been there. <laughs> Spiritually, you've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Preserving history is great, but it often comes with reminders of the darker side of human history. And in Taunton, that reminder comes in the form of the crumbling remains of the Taunton Lunatic Asylum. Oh, boy. Yeah, the amount of times I've been to Salem, this place is less than an hour away mm -hmm. and like a huge destination for ghost hunting and weirdness. And I have never heard of it, not one time. I know. That's what I'm like looking at the area and I I can say that I didn't even know that existed, this little bar. No, <laughs> I'm looking either. at the towns around it. I'm like, I've heard of these, mm -hmm. but then all of these little towns in Taunton, nothing. Nope. Nope. That's I know. Really I know. It's like a little pocket that I just somehow just escaped. did not know. Yeah. Escaped me. And if you guys are from Taunton, we're very sorry. sorry. I'm sure it's great. I didn't know you were there. Once a grand and sprawling Kirkbride-style facility, which should ding alarm bells in everybody's head because the Kirkbride asylums are what your brain shows you when you hear the word asylum. Mm. The big domed building, the big open corridors. The snake pit scenarios, the Geraldo Rivera expose, the, that is a Kirkbride asylum. That's what they look like. Um, and the reason a lot of them had problems is because they were huge 
but designed to house like, you know, 250 people with a lot of space. But because they had so much space, they would cram thousands of people into them and then all hell broke loose. Gross. Totally gross. But if you guys recognize that word, that is why. So anyway, it is no longer um, an asylum, obviously. Taunton is now a prime destination for urban explorers and ghost hunters alike. Tons of pictures of the abandoned buildings. Uh, A lot of it has been knocked down at this point, but some of it still stands. And all of these people who go to investigate are looking for a trace of its most famous inhabitant, serial killer Jolly Jane Toppin. Jane was admitted to Taunton in 1902 after confessing to 31 murders. There's a lot of murders. Wow. Yeah, some people speculate she may have killed as many as 100 people. Gosh, she's busy. She was very busy. And there's truly, and even she said this, she's like, there's really no way to tell. Yeah. There was so many of them and I can't keep track. <laughs> like that she said it. There's really just no way to tell. She did too. She's like, I can't. How can you expect me to keep track of all of these? Yeah. I'm busy killing people. <laughs> Time to write this shit down. A determined amount of people. <laughs> huh. Anyway, perhaps these intrepid urban explorers and ghost hunters might find some of her charts. There's still stuff all over in there. Maybe they'll find a photo long discarded by the staff. Or maybe... If they are very, very still, they will hear the echoes of Jolly Jane in her final days extending her most famous invitation. Quote, get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out on the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. Oh, I just got chills. Old lady walking around the floor of an asylum, yelling that shit. Yeah, Yeah. that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That just made me, you know how when I get scared, I get tired. Yep. And I'm like, I'll just go to sleep. <laughs> I'm feeling that right now. You just shut right down. You're like, Dude, no, no, no. I like yawned as you said it. I was like, oh God. Turn it off. I'm out. <laughs> it's really funny. So this is also one of the reasons why Jane is so unique because she didn't kill for money. She didn't kill for love or revenge or justice. She didn't succumb to fits of rage or moments of passion. As she said, she simply liked watching them die. Okay. Yeah. We all have our hobbies. I know. You got to like something. Yeah. Historically, when people started turning up dead in the old timey times, authorities would not go out in search of a woman. Mm. A woman couldn't be responsible for such violence. No, never. We're so good. I know. The dead in question could have been covered in hatchet wounds and stacked up in the backyard of a local woman that people call Old Bloody Hatchet. And the police would still be looking for her husband. I Where just, is your husband, dear? <laughs> yeah, I just picture them like, sorry to trouble you, ma'am, but is Mr. Old Bloody Hatchet home? <laughs> Can we talk to your husband? Oh, God, I'll never forget when I was, was writing shows at Elaine's. It would be after the show, people would we'd be like shaking hands and talking to people. And I can't tell you the amount of people that would come up to me and be like, did your husband write this? Oh, my gosh. No. No, he did not. Yeah. I did. That's so wacky. (laughs) Me and old bloody hatchet just don't get the credit we deserve. (laughs) To be a feminist is to say women can kill, too. They can. And I picture these cops, like, taking their hats off, too. Like, excuse me, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah. (laughs) They pictured serial killing as men's work. Yeah. 
For sure. Yeah, it was common knowledge that women with their delicate constitutions, soft hands, flowing skirts, and motherly instincts could never possess the level of depravity serial killing demands. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is that on some level, they really don't. They just have their own kind of depravity. (laughs) Right. It's just quieter and more efficient. Mm -hmm. Now, just as a little disclaimer before we get any further into this, I want to make it clear that when I use the word female here in conjunction with published data and statistics, it is referring to people who have been assigned female at birth. There simply haven't been any studies done on trans women and how they like to murder people. (laughs) Whether it is estrogen or your brain chemistry that makes these distinctions is a topic that science has yet to fully explore. Personally, I think that means that trans women get all of the options. So really, they have the best of both worlds. There you go. If you like murder, which I don't like murder. Anyway, (laughs) just saying. According to the data from Radford University and Florida Gulf Coast University, quote, female serial killers account for just over 11% of all of the serial killing cases in the past century. And in recent decades, it's dropped to between 5 and 7%. That's low. Yeah. But remember, we can only average the cases where someone has been tried and convicted. Mm. Kind of makes you wonder. Are women really less likely to kill or are they just less likely to get caught? I like it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I guess there really is no way to tell. So maybe just be careful around women. All women. We're very powerful and possibly dangerous at any moment. You don't know. know. (laughs) (laughs) We can be very efficient killers. Just be careful. That's all I'm saying. Watch out. Yeah. Be nice. Stay on your toes. (laughs) So female serial killers are a rare breed. That is undeniable. But female lust killers are unicorns. Yeah. And that is what we're talking about today. Lust murder is the result of a paraphilia known as erotophonophilia. It's a fun one to say. It is. Wow. Right? Which is, quote, sexual arousal or gratification contingent on the death of a human being. Okay. It's like the worst. Yeah. The worst. We've talked about this before. (laughs) We have. We've definitely touched on it before. Usually, it's linked with like necrophilia. A lot of times, like people will be both. And in this case, it could be too. We just don't have record of it. Mm. So we don't Mm -hmm. really know. Usually, lust murderers, like part of their MO is that they like to torture their victims because they they like that moment of death. So they like to like, it's like death foreplay. Yeah. It almost always involves like, just about killing them several times before they actually die. And this is usually attained through great injury, maiming, and other horrible Inquisition-style activities. But this behavior is almost universally male or assigned male at birth. Again, we don't have the data on anything else. And when it does cross over into the world of women, they're usually doing it with a male partner. Mm. So think of like natural born killers or Fred and Rose West. Okay. Something where they're like, it's a thing they do together that's sexy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm, sexy <laughs> killing. Well, why is this? I truly couldn't tell you. There is a lot of gender and serial killer debates out there, but none of them adequately answer this question, which leads me to believe there simply isn't a formal answer. Yeah. Unless the data's wrong because they just don't get caught. But anyway. The numbers are undeniable. Now, Jolly Jane took this template for lust killing, torture, close calls, all of that stuff, 
and adapted it to the quiet and efficient female serial killing model, which means that instead of engaging in any physical violence, she did all of those things with poison. Oh, mm-hmm. a poisoner. Yes. But uh, not just a one-step poisoner. She liked to poison them a little bit and then a little more and then like... She, okay. Yeah, so very different. Now, I'm sure so you... see, that's a little bit of torture. It, well, it is, but that's what I'm saying. She took torture okay. out of the realm we would expect it to be in, which right. is like, you know, bodily harm, physical, like exterior harm. Mm-hmm. And she brought it into the world of lady serial killers. Okay. And did it chemically in a way that was quiet and efficient. Yeah, yeah. All right. Same results, different method. Yeah. Which to me was very interesting. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you guys have like a lot of questions right now. Frankly, I still have questions. But let's begin at the beginning. Jolly Jane was born on March 31st, 1854 in Boston, Massachusetts as Honora Kelly. She's not born Jane. She's born Honora Kelly. Yep. To her parents, both who were Irish immigrants, and their names were Peter and Bridget Kelly, the most Irish-American names in the world. As much love as there is for the Irish in Boston now, like Boston has a ton of Irish pride now, uh, we have to remember that that wasn't always how it was. Right. The Irish, specifically Irish Catholics, of which Honora and her family were, they arrived in Boston in the late 1840s and early 1850s in droves. And we've talked about this before. You, you spoke a lot about the um, Irish immigration. Um, this is just a little recap. Um, the Irish had fled their home during the Great Potato Famine with nothing but the clothes on their backs in search of opportunities. Many of them were sick or starving, and few of them had had access to a formal education. Now, the predominantly Protestant Bostonians of the time did not care for them at all. Right. They didn't like Catholics. They didn't like these people. Mm-mm. They were not about it. They didn't want them there at all. They sure didn't. Many Irish immigrants of the time spent most of their lives engaged in grueling servitude and trapped in abject poverty. So it was not an easy world that Honora was brought into. Her mother, Bridget, was among the sick. So she's one of the people that arrived already, like, pretty sick. And she died of tuberculosis when Honora was very young. Mm. Again, also very common way to die back then leaving her and her two sisters to be raised by their father. Who was a pleasant man, right? A delight. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. False. Peter Kelly was not an ideal candidate for this oh, job. No. <laughs> Damn. I love your hope. <laughs> he worked as a tailor by trade and was an unstable, abusive alcoholic. Oh. He was also known in his community as Kelly the Crack. There you go. <laughs> Except Crack. He's got a nickname. Sure does. Jaunty. Yeah. But crack was short for crackpot. Oh, that's not good. No. No. Not like a plumber's crack. No, that's way funnier. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a lot funnier. I like that image. But this this fact sent my, like, focus issues spiraling. I couldn't help but wonder where the term crackpot comes yeah. from. Because we think, like, crackhead, crack. Mm-hmm. What is it? So here's the answer. And it's not as fun as I wanted it to be. Mm. Pot is an old-timey slang word for head. Okay. My pot hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so crackpot literally meant one who has a crack in their head, oh. which I suppose would make you a little off, right? Okay. It's usually used for somebody who was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Foolish or crazy or whatever. Okay. Good times. But I thought this was really fun to look up. And I was hoping that maybe we could talk about a few more slang terms because we are going to exist in the world of like hard drinking, good time having, oh, nice, you know, people. So I wonder, like, what would they be saying, Leslie? What are some more fun words? Yeah. Well, luckily, 
I know all of them. In your free time, you yeah. just talk like that, right? I, I do. I really do. <laughs> uh, yeah. So a pretty easy one that people would say would be balls. Mm. Uh, they'd call someone balls because that would be shortened for bollocks. Oh, yeah. Be like balls. You know, we do that now. Yeah. We do that now. Balls right? is all over the that place. One, that <laughs> one's stuck. I like boot liquor. That's the same as ass liquor. So oh. boot liquor. <laughs> uh, cherry is a vulgar term for a young woman. Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't want to be called a cherry. No, no, thank you. Quim is female genitalia. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You dirty quim. <gasps> Terrible. I know. It hurts. That one stings. I don't like that one. <laughs> How about you damn old strumpet? <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> Little whore. <laughs> you damn old strumpet. You damn old strumpet. <laughs> that sounds like who you go to when you have like your last ditch need for advice with men or something. I know. I'm going to talk to the damn old strumpet because <laughs> I need to find me a man. <laughs> that boot licking strumpet. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, blazes was hell or the devil. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Cussed is cursed or mean. Oh, yeah. Okay. Dratted is used for damned. Okay. Mm-hmm. Dratted. Yeah. I've heard that one before. Yeah, me too, but not in that, like, conjugation. Yeah. No. This dratted thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that. Mm-mm. Then there's lick finger or lick spittle, and that's oh. a kiss ass. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Huh? You lick finger. Ew! <laughs> Why would that be something that curried you favor? I you know, know, if I lick your finger, you'll probably like me. I no. Mm-mm. I'll tell you to get out of here. Ew, that is really gross. Yeah. Lick spittle. Ew! <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that one. <laughs> and then uh, tarnation was big back then. Oh, that's for, a like, fun one. damnation, you know. Okay. What like- tarnation? <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. We will forget that. I'm bringing that strumpet here. <laughs> Darnation. You brought that damn old strumpet to my house again. <laughs> that dirty quim. <laughs> oh, boy. Better not have brought that boot licker with her. Better not. Nope. No licking boots or fingers. Ah, balls. Balls. <laughs> balls is a good one. Yeah. Y'all go in blazes. Oh, no. Don't send me to blazes. No. No, I would hate that. Those are fun. Yeah. There you go. So there you have it. That's how that's how they'd be uh, talking about old Kelly the Crack. I know. It was so much nicer then. It was more fanciful, more yeah. whimsical. Now like, it's just like to the point. It's harsh. Yeah, well, we had to escalate. We did. Where are we going to go next? Oh, I think we should go backwards. I think so too. Yeah. yeah we've, so we've reached the apex. I feel like that's how we can de-escalate things mm, too. Yeah. We are at apex swearing. Yeah. Okay. All right. I buy it. Okay. We're pretty, our language is pretty rough. Yeah. Imagine being called a strumpet instead of a whore. I wouldn't be mad. You'd be like, like, what's up? Aren't you fun? (laughs) (laughs) You know it. Where'd you read that? (laughs) You're right. Yeah. So, clearly old Kelly the Crack couldn't handle being responsible for his children for too long, nor should he have done that. (laughs) So in 1863, just a few years after his wife's death, Peter surrendered his two youngest daughters, Honora and her sister Delia, to the Boston Female Asylum, Hmm. which was a local orphanage for girls. I bet it was really nice there. You know what? It was. Oh. I know. I never get to say that. 
At that time, Delia was eight and Honora was six. Nellie, the oldest Kelly girl, was just left to fend for herself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and was eventually committed to an insane asylum. What was she, like 11? Probably. Yeah, she can be on her own. Get out of here. You're fine. <laughs> Past 10 back then, and you were you could work. That was it. Right. So Peter never spoke to or saw his girls ever again. He was like, they're your problem now, and then ran away. Mm. But rest assured, he wasn't just like sitting at home being boring. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, no. Not Kelly the Crack. Mm-hmm. He continued to descend into the bowels of madness until eventually he sewed his own eyes shut at work one day. Mm. Can you imagine that's what your tailor does? You like walk in to get a pants fitted and he's got his eyeballs sewn shut. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is this like a horror movie? Kind yeah. of. Is this made a movie? I don't know, probably, but not like a good one. Okay. It's, it's like the Jersey Devil where nobody like did a really good job at it. All right. I say we take it on. Let's All do right. it. Okay. So I assume Kelly the Crack ended his days either locked up or in a gutter somewhere because there's really no other stories about him after that one, which really go out on a bang. You know, that's going to be it. Whew. Anyway, so Honora and Delia were definitely better off in the Boston Female Asylum, which sounds insanely dark. But for once in my storytelling life, I am happy to report that it wasn't. The Boston Female Asylum was the first girls' orphanage of its kind in Massachusetts, and it does live on today in a slightly different form. I think it's called the Home for Little Wanderers. Oh, yeah. Cute. Yeah. But at this time when it was the Boston Female Asylum, girls would stay there and be cared for, well, as it seems, until they were 10 or 11, at which time they were placed in households as domestic help. Sometimes they were adopted. Sometimes they remained the help. But either way, none of the girls were turned out onto the streets. So they didn't like, you got to go work in a factory and live in a gutter somewhere once you turn a certain age, or they didn't, they weren't a workhouse. They took care of them as children kept them fed and clean and dressed, and then placed them when they were 10 years old. Okay. Usually into like contracts of indentured servitude. Sometimes that led to adoption, sometimes it didn't. But for the time, that was pretty good. Okay. In 1865, at eight years old, which is before the time when the female asylum usually released its girls, they had a pretty hard timeline. Not till you're 10 or 11. But Honora was indentured by Mrs. Ann C. Toppin of Lowell, Massachusetts. She was set to be a domestic servant and live with Anne, her daughter Elizabeth, who was 18 years Honora's senior, and Elizabeth's husband, Oramel Brigham. Elizabeth worked as a housekeeper and Oramel worked for the railroad. Their whatever father figure happened to be in this situation at one point in time is never mentioned. Mm. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that Mr. Toppin either must have passed away before Honora came into his home. Mm-hmm. It's always just Anne, her daughter, and her daughter's husband. Now, it is weird that Honora was allowed to be contracted out so young. The Boston Female Asylum, as grim as it sounds, held that firm limit almost all of the time. And they did really seem to care about their girls. And they did everything on the up and up. Like, pictures of it are pleasant. They're not grim and terrible. But it was still younger than they allowed. So I don't know why they let her go. I don't know whether she was like a nightmare or the woman contracting her out was particularly convincing. Yeah, that's interesting. But this, at this particular point, that's not listed. Okay. I think she might have been a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and do we all remember our fifth grade history? If not, well, that's when I learned about indentured servitude. Mm, okay. Could have been any time for anybody else. 
I can't it, believe you remember. I remember the classroom I was sitting in when I learned about it. I know that's oh, weird. Yeah. Some things I remember very accurately. Really affected you. <laughs> I guess it did. I can like see my textbook in my head. Anyway, if you don't have weird memory like I do, don't worry about it. Here is a reminder of what indentured servitude was. So indentured servitude is a form of labor in which a person is contracted to work without a salary for a specific number of years. So it's pretty close to slavery, but not quite. And it's not supposed to be forever. It's like, we'll give you room and board for 10 years and you have to work for us for free. Okay. Well, we can all see how this is like a little dubious, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for some, this could easily be a lifelong trap. Because where do you go after a 10-year contract where you make no money? You don't have anything. Where You can't like go rent a place to live. You can't buy food. You have not a single dollar. Right. So with no other options, you likely just sign on for another 10 years if you can. And if not, well, you're out on the street. Mm. Some contracts uh, would charge for room and board too. And they would pay like a tiny pittance. And these two would not even each other out so that the indentured would be constantly in debt and never be able to work their way out of it. So that would also keep them tied to a position forever. I don't know which one of those things is worse, but none of them are good. No. We don't know too much of Honora's sister Delia after her time at the orphanage was up. We know that she was placed in a household because all the girls were placed in households. And when her time with them was over, she became a sex worker. About all we know. Indentured okay. servitude can leave a young girl with not a lot of options, mm -hmm. which is exactly what I was talking about before. She probably left the house and had nothing to her name. Mm -hmm. oh, that sucks. Yeah, it's really rough. It was really a system that was just designed for failure. Right. It just set them up to fail. Well, it, I mean, it's like fostering is still kind of like that. Yeah. That's what like sucks. It's just like has a different name, but it's yeah. almost. And when you age out, like, well. Yeah. They're not working for you, but, you know. Yeah. Still, I mean, there are a lot of holes in the system. Anyway, off Honora goes, though, when to her new household, right? And she, when she arrives in the Toppin household, they insist that she go by the name Jenny Toppin, though they never adopt her. Okay. They just give her this name, which begs the question, why bother change her name? And if you're going to, why not just change her last name? They changed her first name, too. Why go through all that trouble? Who appear less Irish, of course. Ah. Mm-hmm. And who insisted that Jane call her auntie. Fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was a not real pro-Irish type gal. She was a Boston Protestant. She did not have any love for Catholics or Irish people. Okay. Um, so they had to make their little charge acceptable in the circles in which they ran. Yeah. Um, and then they really instilled these values on Jane. And she would spend the rest of her life saying hateful and disparaging things about the Irish and the Catholics and the Irish Catholics because she was trained to hate who she formerly was. Mm. Which that'll, that'll fuck you up in the head, man. Sure, sure. Not, yeah. the, not that her family treated her well, but still. Yeah. This is, it's <laughs> they, that family must have been so proud to be like, see what we created. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad we gave her our last name. Yeah. <laughs> we did that <laughs> all us <laughs> but the, this is probably pretty confusing for a kid they're like oh you're here you're Jenny <laughs> yeah this sounds like what are these movies all of these childhood movies are coming back to me of like orphaned kids going to homes where they all get yeah. like different names orphan was a 
like a popular storyline when we were young. I thought there was, I was going to meet so many orphans. I thought there were orphanages everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> I, they I wanted to go every, to them. They were, they were in every neighborhood. I know. <laughs> I've never seen one ever. That's why we don't have superheroes. Mm, There's yeah, not enough orphanages. Right. No, bring them back. <laughs> anyway, Jenny who I suppose Jane is also a nickname for because it's blurry as to when she, she like, took on this moniker. But formally, she's listed as Jenny. Uh, nicknames were weird back then. Mm. She also, uh, she lied about her origin story a whole lot. She did have friends, and she went everywhere with the Toppins. Like, when they went out, she went with them and stuff. And, and I think she had some schooling. But the Toppins did make it well known that this was not actually their child. Okay. This is our little charge. Mm. We saved her from a cruel, cruel life. This is our boy. Mm. <laughs> we bought a girl. Isn't she nice? Ugh, yeah. But when asked about her real family, Jane would make up really fanciful lies. She would tell people that her mother joined the circus and her father was a Civil War hero. Though, to be fair, I don't think anyone would run around being like, my mother died of TB in a gutter and my father was an insane alcoholic who stoned his own eyes shut. And he was named Crackpot. <laughs> Remember old Kelly the Crack? Yeah. That's my dad. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't think anyone's bragging about that yeah. one real hard, but that's just me. No, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I absolutely also would have made up Yeah, people stories. like lean into that one a little bit and I'm like, mm, mm-mm. No. No, that was self-preservation. And yeah. I think any kid in that position would have done it. Mm-hmm. Would have been like, my mother is a unicorn wrangler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my father invented windmills or whatever. Like, and when I become of age, I can be a wrangler with my mother too. I am going to ride unicorns on windmills. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll make windmills out of unicorns. I've yet to decide. Ooh. Yeah. But their horns are very sturdy. Probably. And magical. Durable. Yeah. She has so many options. Wow. Exactly. So as a youth, Jane was described as, quote, brilliant and terrible. Okay. Ah! Did that go on her tombstone? I wish it had. I love this description so much. That is so accurate. I want a t-shirt that says brilliant and terrible. Okay. I'm adding it to our list. You should. It's a really good one. God. And they called her this because she could be very kind and devoted to some of her little friends, but any kid that crossed her or did something she didn't like, or even if she just decided she didn't like them, she would socially destroy them. Okay. Yeah. She didn't fight with kids. She never got her hands dirty. She would just make up horrible lies and spread rumors about them until they were miserable, ostracized, and disgraced. Oh, she's the worst kind of bully. Mm -hmm. And a grudge holder, too, so she'd do it forever. God, girls suck. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> Very charming trait in yeah. a child to be able to like totally ruin people with a simple sentence. Right. Yikes. Ugh. So brilliant and terrible. Yeah. It's appropriate. <laughs> so by the time of the 1870 census, the former honora is also listed formally in documents as Jenny Toppin in print. So it is written, so it shall be. So that's the first time she's got like documents saying that's her name. Mm-hmm. So now we we jump to about 1872, because the rest of her childhood while she was there was just pretty much more of the same. In 1872, Jane had worked as an indentured servant for the Toppins for 10 years, and she was turning 18. That means her contract is up. The Toppins gave her $50, not common either, for her 10 years of service. But still, $50 back then was a lot of money. 
Well, yeah, when you take into account the room and board and the food that mm-hmm. she ate, yep. I'm sure I'm sure $50 is what was left. Yeah, but they also gave her the option to stay on as like a paid servant. Oh, okay. Which she chose to do. So she stayed with this only family she's ever really known yeah. and they, they gave her wages and stuff. So really this worked out pretty well. Okay. As well as anything like that seemed to be able to back yeah. then. So she said yes, she decided to stay on with the Toppins. And shortly after this, Auntie Anne passed away and left Jane nothing in her will, which I wasn't super surprised about. This is mentioned everywhere as uh, something that was devastating to Jane. But like, she made it clear that this wasn't her child. Mm -hmm. She was like, she like owned her for 10 years. I don't necessarily think she was going to leave as nice. Even if she was nice, she never adopted her. Yeah. So I don't, I didn't necessarily think, oh, this one is definitely going to leave her something in her will. I wasn't surprised. Well, I feel like that makes sense to us. Yeah. But I'm sure if you're, you're the kid, yeah. Yeah, you're the kid and you've been working for somebody yeah. for that long. And they're the only family. Yeah, yeah, you would just expect something. Yeah, but she got a big fat nothing. Yeah. So by the 1880 census, Jenny Toppin was now formally living in a home with her foster sister, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's husband. Now, Elizabeth had always loved Jane. She thought of her as her little sister. She really mm-hmm. took to her... She thought, she, well, she's 18 years older than her, too. So she was like this cute little girl that was in their house. And she just really always thought of her as family. So she's like, you know, you can keep on doing exactly what you were, what you were doing. Nothing's going to happen now that my mom died. It's fine. But it's a little bit of a precarious agreement living with Elizabeth and her husband, given that Jane did not like Elizabeth as much as Elizabeth liked her. Oh. But she did like Oramel. Okay. Elizabeth's husband. Yes, Oramel. Awful lot. Which my computer wants to autocorrect to oatmeal every time. I like it. (laughs) Oramel. So, mostly she kept these burning feelings for Oramel to herself. But she did try to flirt with him in like a not so sisterly way. However, this behavior kind of flew right under Elizabeth's radar. She just wouldn't expect anything Mm. like that. Because she's brilliant. And terrible. Yes. But this is going to come back to haunt Elizabeth later. Don't you worry. Jane coasted along through her 20s, living with Elizabeth and Oramel. She never got married herself, though she did come close. She fell in love with a man named Charles May, who proposed to her with a ring engraved with a bird on it. Nice. Everyone mentions that. It has no relevance, but everyone likes it a lot. (laughs) Jane happily accepted his offer, but soon after their engagement, Charles May accepted a job in Holyoke. And in doing so fell in love with his new employer's beautiful daughter, leaving Jane and her bird ring in the dust. I've been to Holyoke. There you go. We used to go to the mall there all the time. Sweet. So every, I have to mention this, and I don't like mentioning it. Every single news article and book at this point in the story story mentions how Jane was kind of chubby. Okay. I don't like to comment on her weight. I don't know that it bears any kind of retelling, but in the place and time that she existed in, it probably did work against her. Okay. Why, like, you know, the her fiancé left her for this, like, supposedly beautiful girl or whatever. Mm. So that's that's hard. That's a hard thing to handle. I don't really like putting that out there, but I think it does play well, a part later any, on. I think anything that could upset her or, yeah. like, go against, you know, like, give her a lack in confidence yep. or just anger her for some reason. 
I yeah. think is important. I agree. Sure. And also there's there's more about her size later on. And I'll, yeah. I'll tell you why in a second. I mean, we weren't body positive back then. No, we were not. No. Not even a little. <laughs> I don't even know that we necessarily are now. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By 1885, Jane had had enough of living with a man she was secretly in love with and working a job that was going absolutely nowhere, so she applied to and was accepted to nursing school in Cambridge. While there, she was very, very well-liked, super popular at nursing school. She put on a bright and bubbly personality. She's probably a bit of a bootlicker. Kissed mm-hmm. up to all her oh, yeah. doctors and, and people in charge. She no, was, I think that would be, that would be the, the little... What was that? The the lick finger. Ew. She was a lick finger. A little kiss ass. That too. Yeah. But um, she would put on a bright and bubbly personality. She was a delight while working in the hospital. And afterwards, she would like, she could get, you know, kind of rowdy and have drinks and swear and party and be fun that way too. Right. So yeah, she was, she, she put on a persona that was very likable. So it is during this time that she became known as Jolly Jane. Okay. And Jolly refers to a state of being as well as her size. That's why they call her Jolly. There's a reason they use that word for Santa. And I also think that her size and bubbly personality would have made her seem safe. Mm. Because she wouldn't be viewed as a threat by other women or coworkers or patients. Like she would be seen more as safe. Okay. Whether that is good or bad, I just, in the time, I feel like that's something that would have added to her being like this like caretaker, motherly yeah, presence, you know. Though she certainly shouldn't have gotten that <laughs> title. Like she definitely wasn't safe, but yeah, I think this aided in her disguise. As in her brilliant and terrible schoolyard days, Jane always had her favorites among patients. While at Cambridge, they were always elderly patients who were very, very ill. Oh, she probably just felt so bad for She's them. She's just so kind and compassionate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jane would gain their trust and become very close to them and often spend hours at their bedsides. Mm-hmm. Sadly, though, many of these patients ended up dying. Right. But they were elderly and very ill, so that was kind of to be expected at the time. Mm-hmm. So the hospital staff never batted an eye. What they didn't know is that Jane had become bored and began to conduct her own experiments. Oh. She wanted to see what high doses of morphine and atropine would do to the nervous system. Yeah, well, you got to keep your mind working. Got to know. Yeah. And uh, spoiler alert, they don't do good things. Mm, They don't help you. Mm -mm, Not in this case. Oh, this was not a hospital-sanctioned study, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Independent study, Mm, mostly, you know. Okay. So we all know what morphine is. It's a heavy narcotic drug used for pain management, which is found in a substance called opium derived from the poppy plant. So it's like heroin and other stuff like that is morphine. We all know that. A large overdose can can cause asphyxia and death by respiratory depression. And atropine is, uh, uh, it's belladonna. Okay. Which is simplifying it a whole lot. But it does have its place in medicine. We've talked about belladonna before. But for today's purposes, you just need to know that it speeds up your heart in high doses and slows down your heart in low doses. So Mm. experiments would probably be interesting. Yeah. It also slows down saliva and mucus production and dilates your pupils. Okay. Yeah. That's why they use it with anesthesia. Mm. It has also been used as an antidote for nerve gas and and other toxic substances in soldiers in like wartime situations. I don't know that it necessarily actually helps them, but it was used. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So these drugs were both very common in hospitals back then, though. In fact, you could probably get them. No, you definitely could get them both over the counter in one form or another. Substances were just accessible back then. Right. So they would simply have been what Jane could get her hands on. And then um, what she did with them got really weird. Jane would lock herself in her favorite patient's room. And so the two of them were all alone. And then she would give them high, high doses of these medications and climb into bed and lay next to them and watch as they struggled. Okay, that's weird. Mm -hmm. When they hovered too close to death, she would bring them back to life with life-saving techniques she learned in school, only to repeat the whole process again once they were stable, adding a little more poison in this time, seeing what that dose did, happily. Sometimes these patients lived through their ordeals, sometimes they didn't. But since they were old and infirm, and Jane was locked in a room alone with them for some time, she could alter their charts and lie about medication, and no one ever batted an eye. She was the kind and compassionate nurse who would sit for hours with the elderly. Now, she describes some of these events in her eventual confession like this, quote, When the climax of my mania passed, I realized what I had done. I have known that my patients were dying. Then my greatest thought was to resuscitate them. I have then worked over them, trying to bring them back to consciousness. I have sent for doctors and other nurses and tried my best to save them. Sometimes I have been successful, but many times the poison was too much. They were beyond recovery and died. So she also like called in like an emergency. Okay. Everyone come save them. I'm trying. Yeah. Look how good I've done. Mm. Great. But it also sounds like she's saying that she was like, like she said after she came out of her mania, yeah. then she'd be like, oh, I need to save them. But then she does it again in a lot of cases. Yeah, I know. Yeah, this is just one still, statement that okay. included. Um, I'm just wondering if that's like. A, no, um, no. And I'm ta- I'll talk about that in a okay. second. Because of this, because of this specific line that I just read, a lot of people will classify Jolly Jane as an angel of mercy killer. These are killers who occupy the role of a professional carer or sometimes referred to as angels of death or angels of mercy. Now, in this role, they may kill their patients for money or pleasure or a belief that they're easing their pain or simply because they can, or to save them, because they want to be able to, they want to save lives. So they create a situation wherein they're going to try and save their life. And I think you could categorize her this way. But later in this confession, she goes on to describe this mania, she says, she uses the word mania, as like thrilling and sexual in nature. Yeah. So I really think lust killer is more accurate. Yeah, say so. That's a weird term, like the definition of angel of mercy mm-hmm. killer, because without your explanation of yeah. it, I would have just thought it meant somebody like killing for mercy, like like so just helping I. them along yeah, like a, a little bit faster. They were going to die, but like, hey, so you're not in pain as, as long. It is or, a weird one because mercy killing is different. Yeah. Straight up mercy killing is when someone is suffering and, right. and you end their suffering. But this is different, like the angel of death scenario is someone who wants to make themselves look very compassionate, but in reality, they like what they're doing. So she could be one of those, but there's an element of like this being a a sexually driven frenzy that I think qualifies her more as a lust killer. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you guys can decide whatever you would like. Don't choose wrong. No, don't. (laughs) Because of her amiable personality and unwavering compassion, Jolly Jane was recommended for a job at the prestigious Massachusetts General Hospital in 1889. And this is a huge deal. 
Massachusetts General is the teaching hospital for Harvard Medical School. They were one of the first hospitals to use anesthesia for surgeries. They had one of the first radiology departments. They were one of the first places to do x-rays in general. They like, they're a big deal. So it's huge that she got a job there. While she was there, Jane kept up with her um, independent study practices and was eventually fired for being rather reckless. Oh. Yeah, these people were paying attention. And her patients seemed to die an awful lot. After her dismissal from Mass General, she went back to Cambridge briefly, but they also fired her, this time, quote, for administering opiates recklessly. You sloppy. Hospitals seemed to be kind of getting a whiff of her bullshit. So after being fired a second time, Jane figured maybe that wasn't the way she should be going and decided to work as a private nurse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Smart. No pesky doctors hovering around. And I have news for you. If a sick person dies, and this is still true, and the family is not suspicious, their body will not be tested for poison. Right. They're not, you're not just automatically given toxicology screens when you die. Yeah. So that's just expensive. So as a private nurse, Jolly Jane was actually really sought after. People like clamored to hire her and she was successful. Sure, a lot of her patients died, but they were all sick and very old. And from the perspective of the outside, she tended to them day and night, patiently never leaving their side and giving them the greatest of care. Around the families, she was warm and caring and a total ray of sunshine. She was Jolly Jane. She was Jolly Jane. And this, of course, emboldened her. And in 1895, Jolly Jane embarked on her fast and furious poisoning spree. Boy. Yep. First, she killed her landlord, Israel Dunham, who was in his 80s. She was like, I don't like this guy. He's got to go. She just didn't like him. Thought he was annoying. Yeah. Yeah. She had been caring for Israel and his wife, Lovely. Her name is Lovely. Oh. Cute, right? That is really cute. Yeah. After Israel passed, Jane continued to care for and live like on right with Lovely. But eventually she was too fussy too. She's like, I just don't want to deal with these old people. And she would poison Lovely too. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and one of the later periods in her last stint with nursing at Cambridge, um, a few of her associates were like, she had this thing where she didn't think old people deserved to live. It was weird. She's like, well, they're old. Who cares? Yeah. Oh, did your true colors come out like a little bit? Okay. <laughs> cool. Not as jolly around them. <laughs> then... So after that, they're both dead now. She moved on to another elderly patient named Mary McNear. Worked for her for a little while. Killed her with some poison. All right. Then to her friend, Myra Collins. Well, that's different. Friend is different. But Mary was for fun. So she was like, liked killing Mary. But Myra was for function. Jane wanted Myra's job as the dining hall matron of the local theological school. Okay. That sounds like a, a delightful job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why. Yeah, right? So after Myra's death, she did get that job. Oh, but good. She lost it almost immediately oh. due to, quote, financial irregularities in the office. Oh, man. AKA she, she was stealing. Jane. Yeah. You because gotta... I, I know, man. Because plot twist, she also loved stealing. Okay. Loved it so much. And the weird part about this is that she had been stealing from patients all along. But they just ignored the petty theft. She didn't steal anything huge. She just stole little things. But they liked her so much otherwise that they they didn't ever report that she stole little things. That's weird. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. They were like, oh, well, maybe she needs it for something. It's yeah. fine. 
They're like referring her. Yeah. She's like, well, she's a little bit of a klepto, but hell of a nurse. Yeah, she's a little steely. Yeah. Well, Lock up your good jewelry. But she at least talks to my father and that's more than I can do. She will sit with him all night long. Yeah. You can so, go to bed. It's yeah. great. She changes the diaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may lose some of your jewelry yeah. and your silver. Sometimes silver I just leave things out for her because she'll bathe them. You earned it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically they were okay. like, you know, when weighed with the options, the petty theft is tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so another fun fact is that by this time, Jane had changed her preferred method of poison. So she's not using morphine and atropine because she's not in a hospital. Mm-hmm. You got to grow. You do. It's not you get bored. She would offer her patient or friend, whatever the case may be, a tall, cool glass of mineral Valid- water. No. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> mineral water. <laughs> oh, I like it. <laughs> a little bit dangerous. Yeah. A little bit fun. But this particular mineral water was laced with strychnine. Oh. <gasps> yeah. Mm-hmm. Not good. Do you remember your your song? For strychnine? Yeah. Isn't that in the, the arsenic? Oh, isn't God, yes. Your poison song? Arsenic something, something, something. <laughs> they both put it at the arsenic, end. Arsenic, <laughs> strychnine. Yeah, then there's... <laughs> bring that one back, John. Uh, 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 arsenic. Uh, uh, arsenic, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Funny you should mention that. Okay. Because if you remember our poison episode, of all the poisons out there, and most of them were available in an apothecary back then, strychnine produces the most agonizing results. Mm -hmm. It was the worst one. It causes painful involuntary general muscle spasms, muscle cramps, stiffness and tightness, agitation, heightened awareness and responsiveness, respiratory failure, stimulation-sensitive seizures, and death. So you know what's happening. You're very aware, but out of control. It hurts like hell. And and it's not fast either. Yeah, it's like strychnine is, God, one of the worst ways to go. It's not good. What would they use it for then? I don't know. I didn't look that up. I I did when we covered poison. Okay. But if you want to look, you can. I'm going to look it up. Go ahead. But, um... If you're given too much of it, it does some really horrible things. And it's the one that smells like burnt almonds, too, I think. But I can see why someone who likes to watch suffering would be drawn specifically to that poison. Because it's going to give you the craziest results. Mm. Okay, so while it's no longer used medicinally, it was used historically in small doses to strengthen muscle contractions such as a heart and bowel stimulant and performance-enhancing drug. The most common source is from the seeds of the strychnose new vomica tree. So vomica is in the word vomit. Yeah, stay out of there. Yeah. That sounds terrible. Yeah, so I guess that makes sense. Because it causes muscle contractions, yeah. Yeah, but in a small dose, maybe it was Mm -hmm. just enough to get them going. Yeah. Almost like um, like electrical stimulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. In a large dose, though, it is it's a terrifying. And there are illustrations of poison by strychnine. It's the one that I posted in our photo suite ages ago of the person like on their back with their back arched and their eyes are like bugging out of their head. Right. It's Ooh. terrible. Strychnine was a nightmare. But it makes sense for her. Got more to watch. After things didn't work out at the theological school, Jane's killing took a rather personal turn. In August of 1899, her foster sister, Elizabeth, remember Elizabeth and Oramel? Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth invited Jane to come and stay with her for a week. She's like, I miss you. Why don't you come and stay with me for a week? We'll catch up. It'll be really nice. 
And Jane said, great, I'm going to come. I'll probably get to see Oramel. Love it. Love him. You not so much, but whatever. You're just a stupid cherry. Exactly. So Jane arrives. She stays with Elizabeth. And one night she says, let me fix a picnic and we'll go down to the beach and have our dinner there. Sounds so nice. Doesn't it sound nice? Yeah, Yeah, it sounds great. Elizabeth was overjoyed. She's like, what a nice gesture. And it would be really nice to do that. Mm -hmm. Of course I'll go. After they had settled into a spot, Jane fixed Elizabeth a nice, cool glass of mineral water. (laughs) Mineral water. Exactly. (laughs) And within a few minutes, Elizabeth began to seize and gasp. And Jane, quote, held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. So she would like cradle her like a baby and just like watch her have these horrific seizures and spasms until she died. This is why I think she's a lust killer. Yeah. She's not just in it for the process. She wants to watch the process. Yeah. She thought, surely this will win me Oramel. (laughs) Yes. She's gone now and she is what was in my way. Mm Mm-hmm. But alas, Oramel was not interested in his beloved wife's weird foster sister who looked kind of suspicious at this point. Mm. He did, however, allow Jane to live with him in their house for a time following Elizabeth's death. Not 100% sure how that came to be, but it did. And then in a fit of, I don't know, attention horridness or something, Jane actually like... Attention strumpetness. (laughs) Attention strumpetism. Jane drank like just a little touch of poison herself and made herself sick. And she was like, mm, I'm so sick. Please help me. Okay. And Ormel was like, um, no, thank you. Oh, really? Yeah. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. He did not want her at all. Yeah. Six months later, um, she poisoned their housekeeper, Florence Calkins, thinking maybe Ormel would then be like, oh, remember when you were housekeeper? You should stay here forever and we can be together. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't didn't work either. No. And she had to go. God, she is just on a downward spiral. Yeah. Oramel wasn't really feeling super great about Jane at this point. And now yeah. his wife and housekeeper are dead. So she's like, okay. maybe I better go away for like a little while. Mm-hmm. So she does. And she finds new lodgings under her landlords, Melvin and Eliza Beadle, who she did poison as well, but just enough to make them sick to their stomachs. Okay. So that they had something that made them like vomit and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then she poisoned their housekeeper, Mary Sullivan, but just enough to make her look drunk. Because if you guys got sick, it must have been the food. Right. And I think your housekeeper is drunk. Okay. You should fire her and hire me. It's so smart. Well, it worked. Yeah. It absolutely works because why would you ever she's assume? Brilliant. She's brilliant. And, and terrible. terrible. Exactly. Somehow the Beatles survived, Jane. I, I really think it was... Like the Beatles? Yeah. The Beatles. <laughs> the <pop group>. Yep. <laughs> but I really think this couple only survived because Jane found another job. I don't think okay. it was due to the fact that, like, they were great or she didn't feel like killing them. I have no idea, but they didn't die. Okay. So during the summer of 1901, Jane decided to rent a cottage in Catamet, which is uh, on Cape... Cape Cod. So it's like a, it would have been like a vacation style home. Very pretty historic little cottage. And she rented from a 62 year old woman named Maddie Davis. And the Davis family really liked Jane. They had rented her this cottage before. They had known her for a great many years. They were from Lowell, Massachusetts as well. 
So they knew her when she was little. And this was like a pretty solid relationship. But this time, for the first time, she didn't seem to be able to pay her rent. Oh. And a curious amount of small fires had been cropping up in the cottage. Jane obviously set these fires because she like loved attention. She would say like, I woke up coughing and gasping for breath and had to call the fire brigade. (laughs) I know. Just really liked attention, okay? Okay, okay. (laughs) I mean, yeah, firemen, I get it. Hot firemen, whatever. (laughs) I don't know why the fire brigade just doesn't sound as sexy though, you know? No, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) This couldn't go on forever, obviously. Lighting fires and living rent-free. Somebody else's house. And the day came where Maddie was going to come to collect Jane's back rent. And if she couldn't pay, then she would have to pack her things and go. Okay. Jane knew this was coming, too, and that Maddie's journey would have been long and hot. Mm. She would probably be very thirsty upon her arrival. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Jane made sure to fix her a nice, cool glass of mineral water. Mineral water. water. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as she walked in the door. Had it waiting for her. Isn't that nice? It's really nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. very considerate. Yeah, and Maddie was appreciative, and she drank the whole thing down really fast. Okay. Obviously, like, she died a painful death afterwards. Oh. Yeah. I this just is hoping um, Jolly Jane, like, has the like, money. She was like, and here's the money. And now we all lived happily ever mm-hmm. after, and Oramel came and took me away when I lit a fire at the end. <laughs> No, none of that happened. No, 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 no. Uh, And Maddie's death is reported differently in a lot of places. Some people say that she died there. Some people say that she was ill and then um, Jane went home with her because she wasn't feeling well and Jane was a nurse. Mm -hmm. So then she cared for her for a week in her house and slowly poisoned her the rest of the way. But there is not, like, not every account is the same. So Mm -hmm. we're not 100% sure exactly what happened. Either way, Jane, Jane killed her. And then moved herself right in with Minnie's grieving husband, Aldine. Okay. Yeah. She's like, oh, I'm, your wife died. You're 64. Probably need someone to help care for you and your family. Why don't you let me take care of you? Nice. Yeah, that's... She's very mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. And the Davis family, who knew her, were amenable to this. They're like, yeah, okay. Thank you so much for being helpful. Now, Aldine was one of the principal workers who built the Ladd and Whitney Monument in front of City Hall. Mm. So they had money. Now, they were all strangely falling ill and dying. Well, it's a good thing Jane was there then. It is a good thing. It's a very good thing. On July 26, 1901, Aldine's youngest daughter, Genevieve Gordon, fell mysteriously ill and died. Mm. She appeared to come down with some kind of terrible flu. Okay. It just, it was quick and... And painful, but like so weird. Then, sadly, on August 8th, that same flu claimed Aldine Davis. Mm, mm-hmm. Spoiler alert the flu was poison. Ah. Um, so to say, because you know, flus are contagious. They are very contagious. They, back get, then, they go through a house. It was hard to treat them too. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yep. the flu did kill lots of people back then. Yeah. This just wasn't the flu. Jane then made a request of the last surviving member of the family, which was their daughter, Minnie Gibbs. She approached Minnie and she's like, we've, we've been through so much together and I'm happy to continue to help with your family's needs. And I just, you know, helped you bury your parents and your sister and stuff. Could you find it in your heart to forgive my debt? Mm. Right. It's the least you can do. Right, right. But Minnie said, uh, no. Oh. No, I will not. All right, Minnie. <laughs> I know. 
And then wouldn't you know what? Minnie got really sick and died. What? Mm-hmm. So weird. Jane stayed next to her in her bed, lying next to her, feeding her morphine pills one after another after another until she slowly died. And in the end, Jane brought in Minnie's 10-year-old son <gasps> to sit with his mother one last time. And she just held him in her lap and they both watched. This is a sick motherfucker. Yeah. Yep. Angel of mercy, my ass. Well, I guess that was that. At that point, the entire Davis family had been killed off. They're all dead now. So Jane went back to... She even tried to do this thing where she told Minnie too, like, oh, and your mother said that when she died, I was supposed to have her gold watch and that necklace. <laughs> she was like... No. Actually, that is the one thing she was like, okay, well, my mother was very kind and she probably did want to leave you something for taking care of her. But then she was like, but I'm not going to forgive your whole ass debt. Get out of here. Right. So is this little boy now like an orphan himself? They had other family. Like Minnie had a husband. Okay. So he still had a father. Okay. Just the Davis family was all dead. So gotcha. like spouses and stuff were still around. And that comes back. Don't worry. So now that she was done with the Davis family, I guess it's a long about time for Jane to go back to Lowell and take one more chance at Oramel. Yeah. It's cooled She's off like a little. Built her confidence. Yeah, exactly. Feeling hot. She put some distance yeah. in between the yeah. last time. Yeah. It's fine. And she thought, you know, I bet the reason that he's not with me is actually because his sister doesn't like me. Oh, yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't his wife. It mm. wasn't the um, housekeeper. Yeah. It was his sister. Okay. All right. Gotta kill that sister, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she's really working through things. Yeah. And mm -hmm. she did. That's what you do. You make a list. Mm -hmm. You tackle. You check them. it off one by yeah. one. Yeah. So she goes back to Lowell, kills Ormel's sister. So she's like, all right, here we go. We're going to be in love. Nothing's stopping us now. That's right. <laughs> no. No love from Ormel. Damn. Ormel. In one last ditch effort, she decides that she's going to poison Ormel. Okay. Yeah. But just enough to make him sick so she could nurse him back to health. Yeah. But she did and figured he is going to absolutely fall in love with me now. Right. Wrong. Oh, he still didn't. I don't understand. This guy, he's the root cause of all of this. God, Oramel. If he could just, if he could just find it in his heart to love her. Yeah. <laughs> all these people would have still been alive. Poor Oramel. No, I don't think so. But <laughs> Yeah. But also, uh, you can't really kill off an entire family without anybody raising an eyebrow. Sure, yeah. So back on Cape Cod, Minnie Gibbs' father-in-law, Captain Paul Gibbs, was kind of suspicious. He thought, uh, how does the entire Davis family, who were all previously healthy, had no pre-existing conditions, how do they all die very suddenly? Well, the, the, it was a strong it, flu it was that the season. Flu. But his thought was like, all of them, they were all healthy. The flu is not going to kill all of them, even though the flu kills some people. Some people live. Yeah. So he called toxicologist Leonard Wood to investigate and exhume Minnie Davis's body. Mm. Yeah. In late September, yet again distraught that her plans with Oramel were not working out, yeah. Jane overdosed a little harder on morphine herself. And once she recovered this time, Oramel threw her out once and for all. He's like, you got to, you're done. You got to go. You can't even stay in my house. Go away. I can't believe he hung in that long. I can't either. That's wild. Yeah. I feel like after she left, 
I'd be like, all right, we're done. Yeah. I guess when she like felt any like, I don't know, compassion towards her. Yeah, I guess when she came back to kill the sister, she was like staying with him too. Because she would be. She came back into town. I don't know how he let her keep staying with her. Well, that's what I mean. Like, it's just weird that like he would because he doesn't really have like a connection Anymore. No, but I guess the house would have been like the Toppin family house and yeah. she's a Toppin. Okay. So maybe yeah. he felt like, I have no idea. It, it doesn't mention Oromel's perspective like ever. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't really know. So she's been thrown out of Oromel's house. She overdosed. Once she recovers from this, she goes to Amherst, New Hampshire to visit her old friend, Sarah Nichols. She still has friends, which is shocking. Meanwhile, investigators had exhumed the body of Minnie Gibbs and tested it, and they found it just teeming with poison. Mm -hmm. And once they found out one of them had been poisoned, they assumed maybe some of the other ones had been poisoned too. Right. So they set out to arrest old Jelly Jane. Nice. On October 26, 1901, Jane was arrested at her friend Sarah Nichols' house for the murder of Minnie Gibbs. That's the one they can prove. Okay. So once Jane was captured, a woman named Amelia Finney, who had been a patient at Cambridge Hospital in 1887, made a public statement with a very concerning story. She said that while she was a patient at Cambridge, Nurse Toppin gave her some bitter-tasting medicine after her surgery. And as she drifted into unconsciousness, Jane climbed into bed with her and began kissing her all over her face. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Before Jane had the chance to kill Amelia Finney, though, someone entered the room. The next morning, Amelia wrote the incident off as a nasty dream. She was on all this medicine and she had just had surgery. She's like, man, that was a wild dream I had. But then when she sees this woman arrested for poisoning, she's like, holy shit, 100% that woman poisoned me. Right. Which is so wild. I know. Oh my gosh. It's like, ugh. I know, I know. Having having like, that realization that yeah. you had a very real brush with death. Yeah. That's nuts. Oh, so traumatizing. Yeah. On June 23rd, 1902, in an eight-hour trial, Jane admitted to all of her deeds. She's like, yeah, I did all that stuff. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. And she stated confidently that not only did she do it, she did it with sound mind. She said, I am not insane, despite what some people in this courtroom might say. Um, she said she knew exactly what she was doing, and she was well aware that it was wrong. But mm-hmm. she did it anyway. And we all know that's the definition of like guilt by reason or like, you know, getting off by reason of insanity, that right. you didn't know it, what was wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. She said, no, I did. I knew. Um, and even though she said all of those things, she was still declared not guilty by reasons of moral insanity mm-hmm. and sentenced to Taunton State Hospital for life. The jury only deliberated for 27 minutes. Yeah. And she went on the stand and said that shit. She's like, I did it. Right. <laughs> and they were like, you're so crazy. So this is an interesting term that I had not run into before. Moral insanity. So I wonder what constitutes moral insanity and why can it override someone's own confession of being within sound mind? So I had Leslie do a little looking up for us. Yeah. Tell us what you found, Leslie. Okay. So based on this, though, I will just say, I think, that it kind of makes sense. Okay. She doesn't, I don't know. But it doesn't mean that she should have been like forgiven and treated well. It just means that maybe she's right. Not with it. Yeah. There's something going on there, Mm -hmm. Um, which there might've been more of a, I think that there, 
I don't know that moral insanity would have been correct. Okay. I think, though, that she would have been diagnosed with something. Okay. Yeah. For her actions. All right. So in the early 1800s, psychiatrists began to focus their attention on individuals who displayed particularly cruel and violent forms of behavior without suffering from any clear mental pathology. So they seemed normal. Mm -hmm. They were intelligent. They were there. They were sound of mind. Right. But they just did really shitty things. Okay. In 1809, Felipe Pinel introduced the term mania sans delire or mania, uh, mania without delusion to denote a condition in which no sensible alter. This is a quote. Okay. No sensible alteration of the intellect, perception, judgment, imagination, or memory is observed. But there is a pervasion of the affective functions, a blind impulse to violent acts, where it is not possible to identify any dominant idea or illusion of the imagination as a determining cause of this blameful tread. That is, the sufferer, and that was end quote. Okay. That is, the sufferer was thought to be mad in one area only, and thus the personality of the individual might be distorted, but his or her intellectual faculties were impaired, were unimpaired. That is interesting. Yes. So many believe Pinnell's research to be, like now they believe his research to actually be the forerunner of present day concept of psychopathic personality. Yeah, because the way you just described it, it sounds logical and like yep. something that absolutely is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely headed more in the direction of maybe like a so like what we would call a sociopath right. or something. Someone who you could hold a conversation with and never mm -hmm. know that there was something wrong. Right. But mm -hmm. they could go off and like skin their neighbor with yeah. no problem. Like even like when we talk about Ed Kemper, just like. Yeah. Yeah. Ed Kemper. Knew highly did, intelligent. But I just did it. Yep. And. Now you could take me off to prison. Yeah, that's totally <laughs> a Kemper. Um, so shortly after Pinnell's research was published, the physician James Cowles Pritchard, who acknowledges uh, Pinnell's work, introduced the term moral insanity, defining as, quote, madness consisting in a morbid pervasion of the natural feelings, affections, inclinations, temper, habits, moral dispositions, and natural impulses without any remarkable disorder or defect of the interest of knowing and reasoning faculties, and particularly without any insane illusion or hallucinations. Good golly. I know. So kind of similar. Um, in cases of this description, the moral and active principles of the mind are strangely perverted and depraved. The power of self-government is lost or greatly impaired, and the individual is found to be incapable, not of talking or reasoning upon any subject proposed to him. For this, he will often do with great shrewdness and valuability, but of conducting himself with decency and propriety in the business of life. So again, they're there, <laughs> but they're like just not, they're like not self-governing, but yeah. they like know what they're doing. Right. But they're doing it. Yeah. Anyway, too. More like they can't stop themselves, but they know it's wrong, right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the debate over what moral insanity was a heated one with many psychiatrists. It's like, you know, we could sit, you and I, yeah. like, even before we started, we're like discussing it and we're yeah. just kind of like confused, but then not confused sometimes, and then confused it's again. It's interesting. Yeah. A lot of them were disagreeing about just like moot points like it was very mm -hmm. small things and then they would just change them like slightly over yeah. time um but they did all agree that the person was intellectually sound 
but had impaired moral judgment. And then this is where it's important to note that the original word moral, so it would have stemmed from the French word from Pinel's use of of it, means more emotional than ethical in nature. So that's also the hard thing. So when we're talking about moral insanity, it's a lot more about emotional so it's not what actual oh. ethical basis. Yeah. See, that's very interesting because mm-hmm. the the language is different now. So we would not assume that you meant yeah. your feelings. We would assume that like you meant like this, I guess, being amoral or whatever. Right. Like, your right. values, not your right. intellect. So in that case, with Jolly Jane, the judge could have literally been like, okay, ethically, you knew it was wrong. Yeah. But emotionally you were like dulled down yeah to wanting and just wanted to do it yeah so that's still insanity yeah no it is in that case then yeah you're right so again they did do a lot of debating and one of the two things that they debated over mainly was whether this disorder was acquired or congenital and also with that whether it was something that was a disorder by itself mm-hmm. or a manifestation of other psychopathological syndromes. Interesting. And that's still something that they talk about now, where even though we don't use a moral insanity, like you would never hear that yeah, in the court now. now, they've actually kind of adopted portions of it into the um, psychopathological syndrome. Interesting. Today. So despite the diversity of opinions, researchers were able to agree on two things. The first is that the development of morality takes place in successive stages. And the second is that the earliest years of life play a crucial role, not only in personality formation, but also in social behavior. And it follows that adult personality is an expression of characteristics developed during childhood, also with regard to morality. Well, (laughs) (laughs) what happens in our childhood really affects what we do in this case. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't great. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. Um, My takeaway from her story mm-hmm. is that she found a way to, like, she used the poisoning and the killing of people mm-hmm. or even the bringing back of people from mm-hmm. the killing as ways to, like, like, she was always gaining something yeah. from it. So at her work, initially, she was, like, looked upon as a great nurse like mm-hmm. look how many people she's saving or she was still so sweet to these people mm-hmm. and and then it turned into just her trying to get Ormel or trying to get that job she also or trying really to get money. liked the act of watching people die well I and I agree with that it was something yeah. that she liked doing but she found it useful too. I mean it's really great when what you your work and your passion yeah have combined yeah when you can do something you love you never work mm-hmm. a day in your life yeah and she was getting away with it at first. But, For a little while, yeah. She got away with yeah. it. But I think that there's something wrong there. If she no, once don't, don't once the heat started to get on her, she still mm-hmm. couldn't stop it. She yeah. wasn't necessarily getting cleaner at it either. No, she was she wasn't. just moving around a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't disagree. Yeah. The phraseology is complicated there, but once yeah. you explain it, it makes mm-hmm. more sense. For sure. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Soon after the trial, the New York Journal printed Jane's confession that she had made before her trial to her lawyer. It's like bad business, man. You're not supposed to tell your lawyer you did it and stuff. But this confession, where we got some of the quotations from earlier, claimed that she had killed more than 31 people and she wanted the jury to find her sane so she could eventually have a chance of being released. 
because she thought if she was found insane, she would be in a hospital for the rest of her life, which she was. Mm -hmm. But if she was found sane, well, maybe they'd let her out of jail one day. They don't let you out of jail one day for 31 murders. Come on, Jane. Well, they do in other countries. Not this one. (laughs) Jane insisted upon her own sanity in court, like I said, and she said she could not be insane if she knew what she was doing was wrong. Blah, 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 blah. But it didn't matter. None of it worked. On June 23rd, 1902, she was found guilty by reason of insanity and committed for life to the Taunton Insane Hospital. Jane lived out the rest of her days in Taunton. She did. Her first year there, she was, like, very objectionable. She didn't want to be there. She was, like, nasty and difficult, and she refused to eat. And so she turned into, like, this tiny, skinny little human. Okay. Which is very strange. The pictures are startling over the course of one year. But after that, she kind of came around and was like, well, this is the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And just was pretty much a patient there. I mean, like, there's not a whole lot to report, except that in her final days, she was heard wandering around the ward shouting, get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out on the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Wild. Yeah. So see, I think her weight did play a role. She seemed to get very happy after she lost them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, guys. No, yeah. don't take that's not the takeaway. No. It's just weird. It's that not she, healthy. No, but. it's just weird that she like made this choice and she just like wasted away for a year. Yeah. But Wild. she did. Ooh, what a spooky one. Holly. It is a spooky one. Ooh. So toast? Toast. To Oramel. <laughs> poor, poor. I know. Oramel. He really didn't do anything. No, I mean, he said no and she kept coming after she him. She wouldn't take no for an answer. She's not right. Get it together. You were posting about this the other day on your feed. I was. You're not a nice guy if you do that shit. Yeah. You're not a nice girl. No. Cheers, Oramel. And uh, I guess all of her many, many victims. Mm -hmm. Cheers Mm -hmm. to them. Especially the Davis family, all of whom were taken in one fell swoop, basically. Right. And Um, do we have anyone else we want to toast? Well, I'd like to toast the person who came up with brilliant and terrible. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I don't know who who said that first. <laughs> it, it doesn't have a name attached to it, but it's so good. So yeah. to brilliant and terrible. All right. And uh, that's all I got. Okay. And if we had the audacity to be old and ill in a trusted Massachusetts hospital mm. ages ago, we, we would, would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. You know, if I lick your finger, you'll probably like me. Ar- ar- arsenic, strychnine, cyanide, belladonna, opium, cocaine, codeine. Ar- ar- arsenic, strychnine, cyanide, belladonna, opium, cocaine, codeine. Ar- ar- arsenic, strychnine, cyanide, belladonna, opium, cocaine, codeine. Ar- ar- arsenic, strychnine, cyanide, belladonna, opium, cocaine, codeine. Ar- 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 we would be dead. Ar- ar- We would be dead.
arsenic, strychnine, cyanide, belladonna, opium, cocaine, codeine, 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 grain alcohol to mix it with or syringes to inject it through.